0: Well, uh, welcome. Good to see you. Thank you. When I first walked in, there were just a handful of guys here, so it's good to see you here. Now, I've given you two handouts. Uh, the one has a front and back to it, but if you can just set those aside for a little bit, we'll get to them in just a minute. And if you did not get those, they're over here on this table, at the corner of this table, If uh, to make sure that you're all, because we'll be getting to those before the hour is up, uh, just to alert you to it. Let's kind of review, anyway, uh, just to review, uh, the author of Hebrews, we do not know who it is, there's just no consensus on that, he doesn't identify himself, we do know he's writing to uh, Jews uh, of the first century who have become Christians, they've embraced Jesus as their Messiah, however, and this is very clear, they are struggling with uh, doing away with all of their past traditions and practices as Jews. As a matter of fact, it seems as if some of them are, are confused about all of this, and even considering going back into Judaism, uh, at least partially. And the author wants them to make a decisive break with Judaism, the law, circumcision, the sacrifices, as having anything to do with their relationship with Christ. And the key, you'll see it here, the key word that is throughout the book is press on, endure, go forward, uh, and not go backward, uh, and so on. So in the first three verses of chapter 1, he has to prove the superiority and preeminence of Jesus. To make that case so compelling that you don't want to go back or even bring in or adapt or mix the two, you must make a decisive break because of who Jesus is and what he's done. First three verses of chapter one, Jesus is a superior revelation, the last and final revelation of God. Uh, the rest of chapter one, He is superior to uh, to the angels, and He He develops that uh, so critically and so wonderfully, as you uh, as you know. And then in uh, the rest of chapter two, He tries to show as He works through that the superiority of the. Of the work of Jesus and we looked last week. I gave a handout on that uh, the four reasons for the incarnation why did Jesus come and that last one I think is so important that he can identify with us he knows what it's like to go through the struggles of being a human now the third item which is where we are tonight or I mean today is uh, verse uh, verse 1 through 3 of chapter 3 Jesus is superior to Moses now let's ask a question why would that be important? I mean, probably for most of you sitting here in 2019 to try to prove the preeminence of Jesus over Moses would well, okay, but it's not that big of a deal. Why would it be such a big deal to the to the recipients of this letter? Say again next year? He is why I mean why is he preeminent in almost everything they think about their heritage, who they are, their identity, etc. He, the he taught them the law, and Got them out of Egypt. delivered them out of Egypt. So I mean, in, in a sense, in in a very real sense, Judaism is centered on Moses, not Abraham. Does that sentence make sense? They are children of Abraham. Abraham is the founder of them in terms of their ethnic identity as Hebrews, a word that's used there in Genesis. But Moses is really the key in terms of their history of their identity. He gave them the law. He delivered them out of Egypt. He liberated them. Because under Moses, they became a nation with the Constitution, the law, And uh, almost, as you know, Moses sinned and was not allowed allowed to go into the promised land, but on the verge of also giving them uh, the land, which Joshua then did. So what the author has to do is still keep Moses as important, but show that Jesus is preeminent to Moses. So look at verse um, 1, and it's really the first uh, three, three or four verses, and then he's going to do... A comparison between Moses and Jesus, and then he's going to move into another area, the area of rest, which it's going to take quite a bit for us to talk about. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. We went through some of that last week. I want to just quickly address this important holy brothers. You have the family language the language that these Jewish Christians are in the family of God who share in the heavenly calling. This is this new order that Jesus initiates or inaugurates or brings about. Consider Jesus, and we talked about this, these three identifying words, apostle and high priest of our confession. The word confession means the belief system, what we believe. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. Okay, so now he is making a comparison. Both Moses and Jesus are faithful in what God wanted them him to do. Moses to do, Jesus to do. Continuing, verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Pairs them in terms of their faithfulness, doing what God wanted them to do. But Jesus is far superior to Moses. He deserves more glory. Why? As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself, which is almost like, duh. You know, Kiewit gets all the honor for building a house or a gym or a bank building. Than the bank building itself. I mean, that, that's what he's saying. It's kind of silly, but that's what he's saying. But when he says "house," what does he mean by "house"? God's house. People. Okay, he's referring to people, not to a structure with you know steel beams and concrete and all that. He's referring to God's people, and it would be first of all Israel, the children of Israel. Because obviously Moses was faithful in carrying out his stewardship responsibilities of delivering the nation from slavery in Egypt, etc., taking him through the you know all the 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 things that Moses did. Now he continues with this metaphor for verse four: for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Okay, again making kind of a a a statement using this figure of speech of a house that God is superior to everything else that goes on because he's the sovereign Lord. So it's like verse 4, parenthesis, most of your translations probably have parenthesis, but it's, okay, this is an obvious fact, but I just want to state it. Then what he does in verses 4 through the the end of this paragraph, 4 through 6, or sorry, sorry, it's actually 5 through 6, is he sets up a contrast between them. And I wrote this up here on the sheet. I, I hope you can read it. And if you are using your notes, you see I have a little uh, space there that allows for you to do this. Because remember, what the author must do here is show that Jesus is superior to Moses. So listen to what he says. Now, Moses was faithful. He had said that up in verse 2. In all God's house, as a servant, to testify to the things that were spoken later. But, word of contrast, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are this house, his house, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So, here's what the author has done. Now, it's kind of it's put a little unusual And it was some unusual language. It's not hard to understand what he's doing. All right, here's Moses. He's faithful in God's house. He's working in and with the people of God. But he's a servant. Now, I mean, when when you see the word servant here in this context, he doesn't mean that he's waiting on tables. What he means is he's serving God in and with God's people. And he testifies to the prophetic truth about Christ, about who he is to be, what he is to do, and what he is to accomplish. example would be Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where Moses says, there is a greater prophet coming, and that prophet, in the language that he develops, is the Messiah. So that's just one example. Faithful, servant, testifies to truth. Christ, faithful over God's house. The preposition over connotes or has the idea of leadership preeminence sovereignty he's not a servant he's a son son of god not a servant of god he's the son of god and he fulfills all of that prophetic truth so just that little simple two-verse contrast you look at that and you say yeah, Jesus is superior to Moses. What would be... I'm asking you to really think here because the book of Hebrews is one of those books in the Bible you can't put your mind on the shelf when you come to the Bible study. You have to have your mind engaged because the author is forcing you to think through things. Now, here's my question. If he has been successful in showing that Christ is preeminent and superior to Moses, what would be his intended consequence of that? Jim? Don't go back. Go forward with Christ. If this is true, why do you want to go back here? Why? In other words, it, it, remember the, the context of this very difficult situation for these Jewish people they've come to faith in Christ but they're they're needing to turn their back on 1500 years of their tradition and all of their practices that define who they are and they're just struggling with not going back and mixing some of it with their practices and faith and not cutting all the ties and the author says you must move forward, you can't go back you must press on you can't go back so he has just given us a very significant reason if this is true, now you go forward with Christ, not go back to Moses. It's not saying he isn't important. It's not saying he isn't significant in your history and your heritage and what he did, because God used him. And he said it twice in the section we're studying. He was faithful in doing what God wanted him to do. But he's not like Christ. And today, even for... Uh, and, and I think I can make this application, maybe not so much a Reformed Jew, but for an Orthodox Jew in 2019, this is an important contrast. They have to come to terms with this. If they don't come to terms with this, they'll never embrace Jesus as, as their Savior, or, and really, in terms of the language, as their Messiah, as their Christ. So the author very cleverly, and that maybe not the right way to say that, very shrewdly in terms of his argument must set up this contrast between Moses and Christ so that they come to the conclusion he is preeminent therefore I'm going to go forward I'm going to keep going forward with my faith in Christ instead of struggling with going back and dabbling in some of the remaining elements of Judaism and he wants them to make a decisive clear break does that make sense? Mm -hmm. that's why this, this little section is here It doesn't take long for him to show that. And there you see again the the plea at the end to hold fast our confidence and boast, our boasting and our hope. That's an unusual way to put it. We don't talk like that. Our confidence, our confidence in what? That Jesus is our Savior, is our Lord, is our Messiah, and we're not going back, and our boasting. Why use that term? I'm sure all of your translations have that. That's the best way to translate that. Are boasting. Boasting about what? The God's chosen people. They
1: have his law. They have his leaders. Have-
0: yeah, that's right. eternal life. Yeah, and, and, and the hope is your eternal life. And which one of these figures guarantees that? Moses? No. Christ. So this is another, again, it's a little a little hard because some of that are boasting, but maybe is isn't as important to you, but for a Jewish person reading it, oh, I get that. Because, and, and I'm not saying this in an unkind way, but it, I've been around Jewish people a lot. I've been to Israel many, many times in my life, and they're a very proud people. They're very proud of their heritage. They're very proud of how God has preserved them through the ages, despite so much persecution and the big pogroms in Russia and the Holocaust in Germany and all that—they're very proud, and in and so it's in that sense they read that boast. They'll get that. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I understand that. But our our, our hope—the author is pleading with them. Now go forward, don't go backward, because it is all right for you to have a, a sense of, of strong heritage being God's people, that he wanted you to be his, his missionaries to the world and the ancient world. And there's nothing wrong with feeling but your hope is not in Moses. Your hope isn't going backwards. Your hope is going forward. you are going to raise so your corollaries for contemporary Christians. I mean, I mean, could I say, for example, I grew up in
1: a Methodist church, mm-hmm. you know, and I was taught this and that and... Or I'm from a Catholic background. We are the New church. And, you know, I mean, it's easy for us, I think, to look back on our lives and think of all the things, how we've been, all the good things we've done, perhaps, um, you know, organization we've mm-hmm. been
0: affiliated with. It really doesn't matter. What matters is our relationship. Is your relationship with Christ? That's it. Is I think that's very applicable uh, in our our time in 2019. Uh, my heritage and my, my history and all my allegiances are really, really important. Even though they're no longer proclaiming truth and no longer teaching truth, that's still important to me. And that's not what's saved. That's not what's important. Heritage and legacy and all those are important words. There's nothing wrong with those words. But that's not where the future lies. Meaning with Christ. And so, yeah, if we can frame it carefully, yes, it is applicable today. And uh, I won't get into where the Methodist Church is today. (laughs) Yeah, I understand. I understand. It's, uh, yeah. But it's so easy to um,
1: sometimes think about the heritage that we have.
0: And what was the word that Tevye used in Fiddler on the Roof? Tradition. Tradition that it, tradition is the most important thing no it isn't that is not the most important and it isn't that tradition isn't important but that is not the most important eternally significant thing in life and that's what trapped the pharisees that jesus dealt with as you know so you know that i mean that that jim that is very poignant and it's very spot on that is an area that often many people even today struggle with in trying to embrace Christ. What does that mean for my tradition, for my past? It's whatever that is. And uh, that, that, that can actually be, and that I have found in years of my ministry, that can actually be a barrier to somebody coming to faith. It really can be. All right. I was hoping we'd spend a whole hour on that so I wouldn't have to start the next section. <laughs> but we do. Now, I've given you some handouts. I've given you a handout on the warning passages. We had one of those already. I'm going to talk about this in just a little bit. And I gave you this morning a handout that has two sides to it. It's one that looks like this. These are What I did is I just made copies of because I have all this on PowerPoint that I've taught through different sections. So rather than put the whole slide up and deciding to save paper, I'm trying to be really, you know, aware of the trees that are dying for these sheets of paper. But anyway, so I put three slides so you can front and back. So you're going to want to start with this this one. And this one we probably won't get to till next week. So don't lose any of this stuff. And if you lose any of it, remember... The penalty is you owe a thousand dollars to the capital campaign at Steadfast Bible Fellowship Church. That's remember that's the penalty. When I was president of Grace, I raised a lot of money that way. I mean, loads of people lost things. That's not true. I didn't raise a dollar that way. That was just anyway. So, are, are you? Is everyone with me? Any questions? I, I, this is hard material, but man, this is really important to start to noodle your way through these things. Because this helps us to understand, once again, one of the major themes of the Bible, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. All right. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, let's just stop for a moment and think about that. Because the author is about to quote from Psalm 95, as the Holy Spirit saith, what conclusions can you draw from that? As he introduces a passage from the Old Testament, Spirit led. Yes, Spirit led, Spirit directed. What's the theological word for this? Actually, I know some of you know, you just don't know you know. Or, I know some of you know, and you've forgotten. Which I'm telling you at my age to say I've forgotten is not an unusual thing to say. So I'm not saying that applies to any of you. But the word is inspiration. So, you know, I don't know if you write in your Bible, I don't know if you write in your notes, but in that verse, starting in, in the verse that I was reading from, verse 7...
1: Which, which je- verse are we
0: on? I'm on verse 7. 7. Okay. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, here's just one of the... There are many, many, many of these. Here's just one of the passages in the Bible that argue for inspiration. That the Bible is an inspired book. And it relates to this... It, he's not quoting this, but he, it relates to... What Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired. All scripture is breathed out by God. I mean, it's just, this is an illustration of what 2 Timothy 3.16 is teaching. Now, I don't want to belabor this, but I was trying to anticipate a question, but it says as the Holy Spirit says, and he's quoting from Psalm 95, and you would ask, why does it say that? So I'm anticipating all that, I answered it, now we can move on. It's supposed to be a joke, but absolutely nobody got it. <clears throat> Today, remember, he's quoting from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your father put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All right. What is the author doing here? He's going back into the Old Testament. He's drawing out an historical event in the history of Israel and using it to introduce a warning. So as you read through this, as you read through this, In contrast to Moses, who was faithful, there was part of a generation that knew Moses that was not faithful. Right? As the Holy Spirit says. So if you would, what word from the passage that he quoted from Psalm 95, what word would you use to describe this group of people? They weren't faithful. What were they? Rebellious. Unfaithful. And that was evidenced by, now it's a figure of speech, but it was evidenced by what? The hardness of their hearts. Do you see that in verse 8? The hardness of their heart. Now that's a figure of speech. But what does that mean if you have a hard heart? Not receptive to the things of God. It's like you have this enormous barrier set up, and nothing can penetrate it, you know, so to speak. And so it's like the reason they were rebellious was because their heart was hard. And so it's, it becomes an interesting figure of speech that keeps popping up through the scriptures. What could harden your heart against God? Now we must as it is with, with all these passages, he's talking to believers. These are believers who have come to faith in Christ, but they're struggling with the role of Judaism in their lives and all that stuff that we've talked about. So what could harden your heart? Could your heart be hardened? It speaks in the Bible. Paul mentions this a number of times. Believers, you're, you're, don't let your heart be hardened. I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but that, don't let that happen to you. Okay, how can that happen? No, that wasn't rhetorical. This is called class participation. But what could cause your heart to harden against God? When things happen to that we think shouldn't happen. Okay. And we 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 get ticked off at of God and blame Him for it. What else? Misplaced values. Misplaced values where you're adopting or internalizing the values of the world, not the values that are that are in God's Word. And values shape behavior, and if you don't believe that, you're dead. I mean, that's very much what you value is going to determine how you act. What else? Pride.
1: Pride.
0: Yeah. And if you are spending absolutely no time reading his word, you're not getting any, let, let's again use a figure speech, you're not getting any spiritual food, spiritual nourishment. And so, I mean, This is what what the author is doing. And so now turns, because we're setting up for the next warning passage. And what I've done here, and you'll you'll notice I have the arrow going downward. Because what the author is trying to do, as he goes through the book, he's going to have a teaching section, and he's going to have a warning passage. He's going to have another teaching section and a warning passage. And each one, it gets more severe. And so we will st- go back and we'll review some of this in a moment. But in the ch- uh, first couple of verses of chapter 2, short warning, but the believer begins to drift from the Word of God. They begin to neglect the Word of God. It's no longer important. It's no longer, it's no longer the vital center of their lives. Something else is. And so here the author is setting us up and that's why this quotation from Psalm 95 is so important, the believer begins to doubt the word of God. Their heart begins to harden. And so what the author is doing is he's going back into Israel's history during one of the segments of the wilderness wandering, which, remember, they, they wandered for 40 years, And they tested God, and God disciplined them. In some cases, that he actually took their lives, took them home. So that they ended up, the end of verse 11, not entering his rest. Now that's setting us up for something we're going to start talking about. They didn't enter the promised land. And who was one of them? Moses was one of them. Because Moses defied God. It's in Numbers, uh, recorded for us in Numbers chapter 20. And God said, because you did that, you dishonored my name, Moses, as the leader of Israel. You're not going to see the promised land. I'll take you up to the mountain. You're going to see it, but you're never going to cross. Joshua's going to take him. So what the author is trying to alert us to is not the specific elements of what happened to Israel in the 40 years. He says, there's one thing I want you to take notice of. God was not pleased with them because they hardened their heart against his word. They didn't listen to him. And for all the reasons that we could cite, all of them would apply to one degree or another. So this unbelief, this this doubting of God, doubting his word, that's hard, isn't it? Or is it easy to doubt his word? Now, be honest with me. It's easy. It's, to easy. it's easy to doubt God's word sometimes. If you, let me just float a couple of statements. Here. Do you believe God is good? Mm-hmm. Suppose tomorrow you go to your doctor and you say you have terminal cancer, you have three weeks to live. Are you still going to say he's good? Or would there, could, could there be, might there be a doubt where you doubt the goodness of God? You know, uh, my brother died in 1983. It was a very difficult time for us as a family. And I'm going to tell you, there were a couple of days where, as we talked as a family, and even in my own heart, how God could let that happen to him. That, that was how I put it. What was I doubting? His goodness. Jesus said, before he went back to the Father, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. Great promise? Please say yes. Yes. That's a great promise. Is it possible you could doubt that promise? Yes. See, what, what the author is dealing with here, although it's very specific in the context of what was going on in the first century, the application of it is not hard for you and me to understand. And so you have this situation where the hardness of a heart of a believer, of people who know God, know his truth, know what he stands for. And that doubt gets them in difficulty. And so the author says, I want to give you an antidote. And that's what this first slide is. Right here, hardened heart. Step one, a product of doubting God. The hardness of heart stems from you doubting God, something about him, his goodness, his truthfulness, his promises to you, whatever it might be. And instead of saying, okay, Lord, I don't understand this, I don't understand what's happening, but my confidence and trust is still in you. Sometimes that doesn't happen. I've been with people, I've been with young guys, I've been with couples who, because of what's happened to them, they really doubt God, they doubt his goodness. And I've had some say, if that's what it means to follow, I don't want to follow the Lord. And they go into a barren period in terms of their walk with the Lord. They'll eventually come back. So that's what he's getting at. How do, I, how do I deal with this? How do I make sure that the hardness of my heart and the doubting of my heart doesn't affect my relationship with the living God? So this is what he says. Take care, brothers. I'm in verse 12. Take care, brothers lest you be in any of an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me stop there for just a minute. So what I did is, is I, I put in your, um, in your notes how, in this slide here, this, this, this downwards, like an escalator going down. You have a hard heart, a product of doubting God, which results in an evil, unbelieving God. That's the result of step one. What does that mean, unbelieving? It doesn't mean you, you no longer believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but you, you doubt that God is really good and God really cares for you. Instead, you say, God's abandoned me. So I don't trust him anymore. And you fall away. Now, that word fall away doesn't mean fall away from salvation. It's talking about falling away from your fellowship and walk and in intimacy with God. So when I put, look at the blue, look at the, the, the bracket up at the top right after the word point, we need to endure with faith and trust and not be like the children of Israel who doubted God, did not believe God would do what he said, and therefore hardened their hearts toward God. What did God promise them? I'm taking you into the promised land. Now, because you disobeyed me, it's going to be 40 years more than what you expected, but I'm taking you into the promised land. Now, granted, I'm telling you, I've been in those wilderness areas. If I'm wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, I'm going to start to of doubt whether God is really going to keep that promise. But He did. But you begin to doubt, and that that leads to that it leads to a, an unbelief, and you fall out of fellowship with Him, and you start following other things. So what's the antidote? So that's the second slide. Take care, brothers. You could translate that: be on the alert. Be on guard. Lest you fall into that evil, unbelieving heart where you're doubting God. You no longer trust God. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about your daily trust and belief and commitment to him. I Listen, and I know this, I, I don't think this is going to be hard for you guys. I've been around guys who came to faith in Christ, a miraculous transformation, uh, a tremendous ministry, and a really difficult time hits their life. I mean, it could be, a, in one case, it was a real prodigal child, a uh, difficult, very difficult situation. And he basically gave up on God and has almost, almost six years of spiritual barrenness in his life. That's what the author's talking about here. We live in a fallen, broken world. We live in a harsh world. Life is difficult. The promise of God, will I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll take you through this, but trust me. Put your hand in mine. This young guy didn't do that. And I mean, it was a very, a very hard six years for him. Now, eventually a bunch of things happened, it was all God's work anyway but a bunch of things happened that brought brought him back to a commitment to the Lord renewed his, what's about salvation it was his commitment, his walk with the Lord, he was so angry with God that's not hard to envision being angry with God, I don't think it is, I mean I've been angry with God and all of you have if you're brutally honest with me The author is saying, "Be on the alert. Be on guard." And then, with that, rely on other people. Exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today, the author speaks like that a couple times. Don't delay. Today's the time to reach out to your brother and sister who's hurting or whatever. Today's the day. Don't wait. And if you're hurting it, reach out to somebody else because we're in this together. So these great one another passages that are all over the New Testament, we need each other. You and I, and because you've been around me, you'll know what I mean by this. You and I are on a journey, and the journey is a journey of sanctification. Does that, all, does that make sense to you? I mean, we've talked about that before. We're on the journey of sanctification. We're all being transformed in the image of Christ. How long does that journey take? Until the Lord takes us home. Which means, that's why the greatest gift of the Lord in this journey is the church. It's one another. We need one. So the author is pleading, be on the alert. When you start seeing the signs of doubt and hardness of heart, reach out. Get help. Look, I mean, you know, read the Word of God. Get the help of others. I mean, don't let this happen. But it's up to you. So it's you begin to drift from the Word of God, and then you begin to doubt the Word of God. That God, doubt what the Word says about God. Doubt His goodness. Doubt His care for you. Doubt His love for you. You're no longer looking at things through an eternal perspective. You're looking at things very much in a temporal, momentary perspective, which is very easy to do. And so the author, the author is pleading, don't let that happen. And you'll see where he's going with this at the end of this morning passage. Now, let me stop there for a minute. I've done a lot of almost preaching, not teaching, but ex- exhorting and admonishing. This is, so, this is so relevant to us today. I mean, it's so relevant to guys. Today.
1: Even if we just uh, don't go to church for a few Sundays, pretty soon uh, we really know we need it. You, know, we, <coughs> you go to church and you hear some things you should have heard, you
0: know, when you were there. And you are. Or, or just fellowshipping with other believers, or whatever—all the things that go on when you're with other Christians. Yeah. And that's—I um, yeah. think it was Darrell who mentioned the word value. The that One of the values of God is the corporate community of believers. That's a core value of God. It's a gift of his. And he wants you to take advantage of that. And you, you know, I, you, I'm sure you've heard, I've had multiple men say that, well, the church is just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. I said, absolutely. Absolutely, you're right. No doubt about it. And I suspect you may have some hypocrisy in your life. But the, the, the thing about the church is it's, a, it's a very messy. It's a messy institution because it's filled with sinners who have come to faith in Christ and who are struggling with life. But they have a whole new hope and a whole new dimension. And they all bring their baggage to church. You know, And I don't mean their kids, although that can be part of the problem. But they <laughs> they, they, they bring the spiritual baggage to church. And yet, I mean, the more you're in ministry, the more you see just all of the struggles in people's lives, all the issues... And so the author is saying, don't let those things lead to doubt and hardness of heart. Don't let that happen. (laughs) And so the the, the counsel then is what he's going to say at the end of this section, starting in verse 14. Any other questions or comments? What specific rebellion is he in reference to? In um, in verse eight, you mean in terms of the history of Israel? Yeah, in, like in verse 8. Yeah, this is in the rebellion. It's when the, the generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt did not listen to God. Take you in. And Joshua, or Moses sent the guys into the land and they came back. They're giants. They will never win. We're, never, we're not going to do it. Let's go back to Egypt. That's the rebellion. They're not believing when God said, I'm taking you into the promised land. Canaan is yours. And ten of the twelve said, "We can't possibly do this." And everybody believed them, except for Joshua and Caleb. We can do it because God is with us. So that's the rebellion, the nature of that rebellion, and it did lead to a hard, and and to why virtually all of that generation that came out of Egypt, almost everyone in that generation died. It's the next generation that goes into the Promised Land. Does that answer your question? Okay. I saw another hand.
1: So the main question would be, how? How do you not doubt? What is it that you just make a decision not to doubt? Or you look at God's, I mean, the Israelites, I mean, they have a a long history. They could look at that and see God's faithfulness. Mm -hmm. I I tell younger people many times that one of the benefits of being old is that you (laughs) can look back and see all of circumstances you've experienced in life and in the heart of the time you can see how faithful that was in the, in the, with the perspective of time but so you're faced with a, a circumstance so what, what, what advice would you give for someone to
0: overcome doubt first of all I, I think it is important to reach a mutual conclusion that doubt is not necessarily evil or wrong the issue is, what am I going to do with this doubt? I mean, it is just reasonable for you and me as Christians, as brothers in Christ, as believers, to have points where it's reasonable for us to doubt God's goodness because of a circumstance. You, know, you, you lost your wife, to, first wife to cancer. I don't know, you and I never talked about specific, but I would imagine there were times when that was hard for you to still see God is good because of what your wife went through and so how do you get that resolved that we have doubts is a given it's what do you do with that that's why the author says exhort one another you part of part of what happens when you go in fellowship with other believers is you do begin to see i'm not the only one struggling with things I'm not the only one that has doubts in terms of just life and how okay you resolve that by by making sure You keep reaffirming in your mind, in your heart, through reading God's word, through reading devotionals, through hearing that God is good, God is sovereign. His purposes are something I can trust in. Jim, I mean, there's no silver bullet to that. But if you try to resolve doubt on your own and and never involve anyone else, it is very difficult, not impossible, but it's very difficult to do that. And so, doubt. Os Guinness, one time, he's a British evangelical, legal, great, great writer. He wrote a book one time with a simple title, "Doubt." And what Guinness does in that book is he says, "Doubt is not something that's evil. Doubt is a common response that we have, but it's what we do with that doubt. How do we resolve? I like to put it: How do we resolve that doubt?" And so, I mean, I, there's no silver bullet to that, but that, that is part of how you have to start. That's why he says, take care. Be on the alert. When you have a doubt about the goodness of God or his grace or his purpose, okay, that, be on the alert. Now, what am I going to do with that? How, we, and that's why he says, exhort one another every day. The encouragement and, and just, just talking to someone sometimes really helps. sharing life together with someone can really help.
1: Sometimes somebody will pray with you.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: So it's really really important. Do you remember when man was dying? This person, Psalm says that God is good and right. Mm -hmm. And for the life of me, I couldn't understand. Mm -hmm. But I just clung to that verse.
0: That's great. Mm.
1: Knowing if I was doubtful or angry with God in the end, it would
0: destroy my life. Mm. Really mm. And Jim, there are some guys, that's exactly what it did. Their heart became so hard and so angry with God. I mean, it really, it can so affect your life and so affect your future. And that's what the author is saying. Don't let that happen. There are lots of resources and ways in which, but you've got to be on the alert. Yeah, it's, and that's what that word means. You have to take responsibility for that. And what are you going to do with it? Um, um, well, yeah, I was going to go down a bunny trail, but I don't think I'm going to do that. All right, are there any other questions or comments? You're with me. More importantly, you're with the word here. Do you understand what the author's doing? He's trying. Step two in the downward spiral of spiritual defeat. You drift from the word. You're neglecting it. Step two, you begin to doubt it. And the hardness of your heart, where where it's, it's more and more difficult now for God to pierce and penetrate with his truth. So he goes on. Verse 14 now. For we have come to share in Christ. Isn't that a great way to put it? If we're since indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. He's quoting again from Psalm 95, verse 7 and 8. So it's just, you know, keep we're sharing in this. We share in Christ. And we don't want to neglect our original confidence. We're going to keep that firm to the end. There is a word for this, and it's a word that's going to, I don't think it's it's occurred yet in the book of Hebrews, but it's going to be coming up. That word is perseverance. That word is perseverance. Persevere. What's another word for persevere? What's that? Struggling on. on. Endure. Hang in there. I mean, all of those different ways of putting it. For verse 16. For who were those who heard... And yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Meaning Canaan. Those who were disobedient. So we see they were unable to enter rest because of their unbelief. Their doubt. Unbelief, not not in believing God exists and what he's done and so on. It's that in, rephrase that, unwillingness to trust him, unwillingness to hang in there. And you turn from your confidence and trust in God to either despair or trust in yourself, and it leads to. So you have these three questions where each one is obviously answered. Who were those who hurt and rebelled? The people who left Egypt under Moses. With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned and whose bodies fell? God disciplined them. They didn't enter the rest. They didn't enter Canaan, and so on. Therefore, I'm continuing now as we finish off the second warning passage. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good for good news came to us justice to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They're rebels. So he's introducing a word here. And you saw it in verse, you saw it much earlier when he quoted from Psalm 95. You see it in verse 1 of chapter 4, rest. And now you're going to see it in verse 3. Rest we've got to talk about that word, but before we talk about it and start to enter into the next major section, are there any any questions any other question? Do you understand the warning passage? Mm-hmm. Yes. All right now what i um, we only have a few more minutes, but i want I really want to lay this out. Do not lose this. I'm going to refer to this about the next four weeks. Look at this; it's on the back side of the handout I gave one of the handouts I gave you. It has at the top use of rest in quotation marks in Hebrew, and then I have a whole bunch of references. This is a word that keeps coming up in these next several chapters. So what I wanted to do, and I hope I don't lose you with this, but if you don't if you don't think of these categories, and ask yourself, and I'm going to help you answer that, ask yourself, which one of the rest is he referring to? Okay, so you're still with me? Mm -hmm. When he uses the word rest, he could be referring to Sabbath rest, the Sabbath. Shabbat in Hebrew, Shabbat means rest. So when God ceased his creation activities, this is a picture of the believer's New Covenant rest in Christ through salvation, the rest of salvation. Israel's rest in Canaan, when under Joshua they had conquered the land and began settling into the land. This rest pictures the believer's present rest as we claim our inheritance in Christ, the rest of submission. And a future rest, the rest of heaven. Being with God when the struggles with sin are over. So what the author is going to, listen very carefully to me, The uh, the author of Hebrews is going to say, the picture of Israel, ancient Israel's life, and its various rests, picture the rests that are available to you and me, this side of the cross, with Christ. Now that sentence I just uttered is a long one. But in other words, the word rest is an important word in the Bible. You remember when Jesus, it's in Matthew 11, Jesus is talking, he's been talking to the Pharisees and all these guys, and he says, now listen, come unto me, all you who are labor or heavy laden, burdened down, and I will give you rest. Rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is like, this is Jesus speaking. What is he talking about there? A good night's sleep? Come unto me, all oh, you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No, it's not a good night's sleep. Rest from what? From the struggle with sin. I'm the solution to that. When the people of Israel uh, get the, the law at Mount Sinai, And one of the things that's developed in the law is Sabbath rest. Six days you labor, the seventh day you rest. What's the model for that? What's the pattern for that? Why why does God want them to live that way? that's That's how He did. That's how He did when He created the world. That's that's the pattern. Six days rest. So you, who are my people. You work seven day, six days, but the seventh day is Shabbat, the Sabbath. And that day is not like all the other days. It's a special day. There are lots and lots of things that are going to be a part of that day, but that, but that day of Sabbath rest Shabbat is a sign that you're my people, that you're in this Mosaic covenant relationship with me. That's a really, really important way in which you think about organizing the pattern of your life. Six days, rest. Six days, rest. And so it's not just a rest of change in my physical labors and the schedule of my day, because that rest is physical rest, spiritual rest, spiritual renewal. Then you have, this is metaphorical, you have the rest that he referred to the rest of going into Canaan. What does that mean, the rest of Canaan? Because if they go into Canaan, that, that's not rest. They're working hard. They're you know, rebuilding the cities that were destroyed. They're reorganizing the olive tree orchards and, and the land that's been devastated by war and so on. So they're not sitting around just drinking coffee. But it's the, now listen to me. It's the rest of a fulfilled promise. God promised them this land. And so Canaan rest is the rest of a fulfilled promise. And so that becomes for you and me, we come to faith in Christ, we experience that spiritual rest. Now there's that rest. He's promised it. It's the rest of fulfilled promise. But there's a great future rest. And that future rest is heaven. It's, It's heaven when Everything changes. We have a whole new body, resurrected, glorified body, where there's no even thoughts about sin. Evil is completely eradicated. Our attitudes and our motives, man, that's rest. I don't know about you, but I cannot imagine what that's going to be like. I believe it with all my heart. That's one of the things that keeps me going. But, you know, I haven't experienced it yet, but I believe it. So it's this this word rest that you're going to start seeing a lot in the book of Hebrews in these next couple of chapters. Keep, keep this right here like this. So every time you come into class, pull out your Bible and put this right next to it. Does anyone not understand that instruction? Now, I know I'm being a little facetious, but I, I want you to understand and I want to try to help you understand what is the author teaching us here? Because it, it's a little hard. A couple of these passages get a little bit difficult. He keeps going through all these different rests. But we'll be able to get through it. It is it's, it's all wrapped around the important word promise. God's made promises. Can I rest in those promises? And so that's what we're going to hit next week. We'll start right away with verse um, 3, I suppose. Yeah, we'll start right away with verse 3 and just start to work through it. Whew. All right? And don't lose this one either. So you'd have this one on top and this one right next to it. Because we're going to keep bringing those up. And uh, it, I hope this all helped in making clear what is a really wonderful book in the Bible. All right, I'm going to pray. and uh, And we'll... I guess it's probably still raining, and we're out into the rain. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you give us the, the blessing of one another, of men who know you, love you, and want to walk with you, men who experience life together. We know the hardships, the ups and downs, the difficult circumstances, but we're in this together. We're on a journey together, that journey of sanctification. We're watching you transform us into the image of your son. And through the difficulties and challenges of life, we see that, just that, that growth. Keep us, Lord, from doubt which leads to hardness of heart. When there are doubts, seek, that we seek to resolve those. That, the questions we might have, we, we seek to get answers if they're possible. Lord, it's hard sometimes, just the reality of life, to not doubt you to not doubt your goodness, to doubt your grace. There are times just in life when we're exhausted physically or we're stressed out with work or the circumstances or physically uh, debilitated by disease or we watch someone we love debilitated by disease. Lord, quite frankly, it's hard not to doubt sometimes. But we seek to resolve those because we're in this together. We're exhorting each other. We're encouraging each other because we are praying for one another as brothers in Christ. We want each one of us to cross the finish line of life and finish well. We want to hear you say to us, well done. We want, to, we want to represent you in everything that we do and say even now. So as we are studying these things together, as we're encouraging one another through these things, help us to always trust and believe that you do have our best interests at heart, even when there are times when we doubt that. So, Lord, we commit the rest of our day to you. I, I ask you to be with these men. I, I care for them deeply. I thank you for each one of them. I, I want you to continue to grow uh, each one of them in their in their depth of trust and the confidence that you are indeed uh, leading them and guiding them through life as they depend on you and rely on you. Keep their hands tightly, tightly in yours. So, Lord, we commit each one of them to you as we go our separate ways. We ask your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. See you next uh, week.